This is Leaders Who Scale, and I'm Jeff Siegel. I've worked with thousands of companies over the years, and I'm fascinated by seeing how many of them grow and scale. Join me as we learn from the leaders of growing companies and share that knowledge. Leaders Who Scale is sponsored by Siegel Solutions, providing world-class accounting, advisory, and QuickBooks and Acumatica Cloud ERP service. Today's guest is actually a special guest, a longtime client of ours, and we typically um, interview leaders who scale, but today we're going to interview a person who is a solopreneur, and we'll talk about why and about his practice and how he's you know, he uh, operates in it as a solopreneur. So he is an advocate, a consultant, and an independent educational evaluator. He has a PhD from the University of Connecticut in emotional and behavioral disorders. He has a doctoral, he was a doctoral candidate in clinical psychology, and he can correct me for any of this uh, information I'm Reading to you as when I asked him for his bio, I got a 28-page uh, novella um, that I'm trying to glean from at this point. Um, he has spent 48 years as a professional professor of special educational education with Rhode Island College. He has been a consultant, evaluator, and school psychologist for countless school districts. He's presented and held workshops and seminars on various aspects of special educational education locally regionally, nationally, and I just found out internationally. He's been published in many journals and magazines and been invited as a guest on numerous radio and television shows. He's served as an advocate, a consultant, an independent educational evaluator and expert witness for more than 35 years. And during that period of time, he's evaluated hundreds of children, adolescents, adults with disabilities. He's conducted independent and functional uh, behavioral assessments. He's developed, implemented, and evaluated behavioral intervention programs and served as an advocate to parents of children and youth with a wide range of disabilities, including ADHD, autism, cognitive delays, emotional disorders, learning disabilities, and other health impairment um, with tra traumatic brain injury and other disabilities. I want to welcome, after all that, Dr. Steve Ember. Welcome, Steve. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate the introduction. And I have been doing this now over 45 years. Oh, 40. Oh, I said 35 earlier. Sorry about you that. You did, but that's okay. It's it's uh, time passes quickly. It's so I, I appreciate the uh, work you put in, the introduction. Uh, uh, very kind. And, and thank you so much for your work on this, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thank you for being here. It, it, you are a special guest. Um, like I said, uh, you know, we, we've been interviewing people who are growing um, but I think it's great to see a person who 45 years has pretty much, um, been on your own and how you've done that, you know, um, with, with everything I read, everything you've done. I mean, I, I, I got, I got tired reading it. Um, I shouldn't say tired, but it was like, there's a lot there and you've done a lot for one person. Well, I, I did send it to you to not that I made a medical recommendation to try to assist you in any insomnia that you might have. So <laughs> I apologize. I know it's long and boring, but I felt I should send it. You know, when you, when you work for a college, uh, Jeff, they expect you to be out there and you might say, well, this isn't Harvard or Yale. No, it isn't, but they want you to publish. They want you to, to, to uh, hold office, state's good, regional's great. If you could hold national or international office, which I did, yeah, okay, that, that makes administrative folks happy and it's a community service. Um, but uh, in any event, you're expected to document everything. And so it's kind of what you do. I yeah. will say, given that we have the internet, it's a lot easier to add to my CV as I do mm -hmm. from time to time than it was years ago when it was on mimeograph paper. When I first started back in the 1800s, right. not papyrus. Oh, you you came shortly thereafter. That. Yes, it was it was shortly thereafter after papyrus. That's that's yeah. that's uh, that's true. Okay, good because I I couldn't read um, hieroglyphics, so I wouldn't I would have had a challenge trying to. Uh, well, you need a Rosetta Stone. And my I have an older daughter that's a neuropsychologist who's brilliant. She actually had the ability took a course in reading hieroglyphics two wow. semesters at Brown University. Wow. And uh, so I, I, I was very impressed. Of course, the issue I have there is that if we're talking about Egyptians, uh, unfortunately, they tend to be biased towards women. I, I don't know if you know that. They're always talking about mummies. 
Have you ever heard him talk about duddies? No. Mummies. Okay. That's it. <laughs> I'm going to get buried this alive. It's not a comedy that. show here. <laughs> so I, I'm just curious, um, what, what's the most challenging aspect of really being a solopreneur? I mean, you, with all these uh, cases you're working on and you're a professor, uh, you, you, you're writing, you're doing seminars, your workshop, there's a, there seems to be a lot there. So what, what, you know, are there some of the things that are really challenging for you? I would say the word balance probably best describes my challenges over the years. Um, I was a professor literally until uh, June of 2021 full time. And so everything you've just said is part of what I was doing, the teaching, the grading of papers, responding to students, which I think is, is very important. The communication is critical. Balancing all of that with all the aspects that I have, which is uh, doing research for clients, um, writing reports, uh, interviewing, sometimes still doing testing, mm -hmm. and uh, also coping with the changes that have befallen all of us because of Zoom. So I, 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 because of Zoom, because of COVID, which Zoom is part of what I've, I've even testified via Zoom. So it's a matter of balancing all my cases, and I work really hard to stay on top of everything, communicating with my clients, and um, that's, that's very, very vital, especially as you approach trial. So yeah. that's been a huge challenge. But I've, I have to say I've gotten better with age. I think when I first started, um, this was really incredibly hard. One other comment I would make, I, I had a, a phenomenal doctoral advisor in special education, educational psychology that my doctorate from UConn, as you mentioned, and it, it's in the field of ed psych with a focus on special education and emotional behavioral disorders, master's degree with a focus on learning disabilities. You don't get courses in how to set up a business, how to, how to work with a practice, mm -hmm. how to network with other people. You don't get that. Now, I was very, very fortunate. I had a professor at UConn by the name of Dr. A.J. Papanico. And Dr. Papanico would call me up. He'd say, hey, I'm going to consult in this place. Are you doing anything today? Do you have time to come with me? I never turned that down. I was very lucky to have that opportunity. But quite honestly, even in terms of my teaching, the first graduate course I ever taught, really, you don't have a mentor necessarily. You could, but you usually don't. And so it's a lot of challenge is beyond your studies. It's really analyzing and learning how to organize and be responsive and, and meet people's needs. And you kind of have to learn that as you go along. So that's also been a huge challenge. I mean, how do you keep all these balls in the air? Because it sounds like uh, you've got to write reports, you've got to uh, evaluate your uh, client, I guess I call them clients, whether it's adults or children or parents. Um, you've got to get new cases. Uh, you know, how, do you, how do you balance all that? Well, it, it really is a challenge, and um, I've been very fortunate. I have a person that I met in a BNI networking group, mm -hmm. and she's been extremely helpful in working to refine my website, use keywords, and get me out there. And I've worked really hard to learn how to interact on the internet. So if you were to put in special education consultant or special education expert, I've been coming up maybe three times on page one of Google. That's been a hard, a very challenging achievement. And periodically you need to work on it again. It's kind of like weeding in a garden, not the same as whiting or arithmetic, but reading. Anyway, <laughs> seriously, it's, it's a challenge. So I've had to do that. And then as you say, the challenge of keeping those balls in the air, part of it is knowing whether you should take a new case, whether it maybe isn't a good match, going to be too time-consuming, whether you want to gonna promise people the moon. They say, look, I need a report in three weeks. I've had that happen, and you have to tell them, gee, you know, I, I'd love to work with you. If you can change the timeline, great. If you can't, I can't accept the case at this time because I have so many other cases. So there is that balance. And yet the, the, the real challenge is how do you maintain a personal relationship with your clients so that you talk with them, you meet with them, 
and and in terms of the kinds of cases that I get, that's extremely important. Mm-hmm. So it is a challenge, but I, I guess I stay present. I stay focused in it. If I get overwhelmed, which I don't get overwhelmed too, too often, but it absolutely happens. Then I start to make Microsoft tables. I list the client, the date that they retained me, uh, what the issues are, what the progress is, any specific things I need to do next. Mm-hmm. And then I periodically update it. And that's been extremely helpful. Have you thought about the years bringing somebody in or merging or just kind of growing beyond just yourself, um, wh- whether it's admin, bringing in admin and support or another uh, professional, another doctor like you to, to, to kind of grow? I have thought about that quite a bit. And in fact, there was a particular um, psychologist and he himself, he and his wife were, were, both of them very bright, capable people, but they were having tremendous difficulty in getting their local school department to provide and meet the needs of their of their son. Very young, I think he was six years of age when I evaluated him long ago. And please understand, it included his efforts. I'm not going to take full credit for this, but I did write a very detailed report. He and his wife seemed extremely appreciative of it. Um, and we presented that report to the school. And as the federal regs say, they have no choice but to consider it. But that's Clinton-esque. See, that depends upon what you mean by consider. It can be, oh, yeah, okay, I've looked at it. Yep, considered it, rejected it. Uh, I only had one case, by the way, where a special ed director, this is long ago, and I didn't really have a conflict with her. But the parent went in to show her my report. She rolled it kind of into a, not a ball exactly, and threw it in her face and said, I'm not even going to read this. So she hired counsel and the special ed director said, like I told your client, I'm not going to read this and threw it at her. Well, there is a a federal regulation that specifically requires school districts to at least consider the eval and the district lost and she appealed, the special ed director appealed and she lost again. And they said, you got to follow Dr. Ember's findings and his recommendations. You know, I mean, I was glad that I was able to be of help, but what a sad thing for the parent to have to go through. So, you know, but there, there, there's a lot uh, involved in, in conducting these assessments, these meetings. I will say that my practice has changed. And so one of the more recent challenges mm-hmm. is it's no longer on personal injury cases, especially with kids with disabilities or adults with disabilities. It's no longer absolutely that the case is going to settle without a deposition. And so now, for example, in the past year, I had two cases and they happened to be in Illinois, it, just pure coincidence. And in one case, I actually represented the lawyers for the school district. And I said to them, if I find that the district has done anything untoward or unethical towards the child or the parents, I have to tell you I'm out. And they said, OK, we don't think that's the case. We respect that. Go for it. In the other case, it's still open case and it's a matter of working with the attorney on behalf of a child that was uh, physically injured in school pretty seriously. I had to do very lengthy, detailed depositions in both of those cases, and the preparation was extremely intense. So when you say challenges, how do you keep a balance? When I have to focus on the deposition, then I kind of have to limit my focus on almost anything else. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to say this to you, too. Uh, What what helps me, I've been told my testimony was great. Well, let me tell you, it wasn't without tremendous support from very capable, intelligent, cooperative attorneys. They prepared me. We worked very, very hard over a period of time. And so when I did those depositions, I was ready to go. And uh, I've been told my cross-exam is is stronger even than my direct testimony. So, I mean, that has been a more recent challenge. And I've been testifying in family court cases, uh, sometimes on Zoom. And criminal defense cases with individuals who have special needs. Last year, I had a case in Springfield. They did not want Zoom. Uh, I needed to, to drive up to Springfield, and I testified in person. I've had family court cases in Massachusetts where, you know, they, they were okay with Zoom. And I had other cases where I had to go in person and testify directly before the judge. So I've had cases in currently a case in Hawaii, and I have testified via Zoom. Some of you might be going, ah, oh, shucks. But, you know, it's not practical that I would necessarily go out there under these circumstances. 
So there's a lot to balance. Um, it really is. You, you haven't had uh, the cat face on Zoom, right? Like that, uh, the thing that went viral. Not, do you remember that last year? He was uh, testifying in front of a judge, and his uh, one of his children had changed the uh, the face on Zoom, and he was a cat. Do, I don't know if really? you saw that. Okay. I don't know. Probably the person after seeing that decided to go have a strong drink and they became a catatonic. I don't know. Seriously. <laughs> uh, now, you asked me if I thought of going into partnership and I didn't yeah. answer your question. So we almost went into partnership. But then uh, as much as I respected this particular psychologist, he made a unilateral change with some part of the business and how it was going to be presented. And he hadn't run it by me. And I thought about it and I thought, you know, I think what I want to do is maintain a good relationship. We can maybe refer to each other, but I don't think I want to go into practice, my own practice with him. Uh -huh. I have worked with other people from time to time in practice a little bit, much earlier in my career. I found it helpful to consult with lots of people, and I'm, I'm not short on when I need it. I'll ask for legal advice. I'll ask for uh, practical advice. Uh -huh. I have a case right now that dealt with remote learning, and I called a, a, an up-and-coming clinical psychologist who's at the New York University, and I spoke with him. He's very knowledgeable about testing remotely, that, that is using Zoom or some other platform. Similarly, very helpful, written a book on it, which I read. So I reach out to other people, but I really find it's simpler, and I have more quality control if I just do this work uh, and I don't partner up with somebody. So I've thought about it. I really, really have, and I'm still possibly open to it, but I have to say, I think it's worked well for me to do what I do the way I do it. So mm -hmm. I, I've gone to my attorney. I have a retainer agreement. I think it's very fair to my clients, but it also protects me and my time and my business. So yeah. that's, that's the process that I went through. So you probably can only focus on so many cases at a time, I would assume. Is it just because well, I, I, I actually have several. I don't know whether I, I do. I have at least five, maybe more than that. They're intensive. Yeah. But the good news, I have one that's in federal court in, in New Jersey with a parent that is representing herself. She started out with attorneys, very, very capable woman. She and her husband are taking this case on and they found me on the Internet and they retained me. And right now, the case is in a bit of a quiet period. So even though it got intense for a while, and this is what happens, it's almost like watching the waves of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, sometimes they come in strong. And, and once in a while, what's really tricky is when I get two or three new cases within a short period of time, then it's difficult because I have a lot of my work involves a lot of reading, a lot of interviewing. Uh, and then sometimes quite a bit of research. And so most of the time, though, the cases are not coming at me at all at once. That almost never happens. It is a balance in, in life, and I'm very grateful for that. It's sort of like the universe is protecting me. I don't know how, but I believe in that. Are there certain, <laughs> are there certain cases that you actually really like to take on? Uh, and has the nature yeah, I, that's a great it's a yeah. great question i really appreciate that question because you know do i love to take criminal defense cases on to be perfectly honest no i've been hired i was hired back in 1987 in rhode island on a criminal defense case and no we're not talking about a and e we are talking about murder that was murder one that now why was i involved because the attorney felt that his client had extremely limited comprehension that he probably didn't understand his rights, uh, that he might have not even been competent to stand trial. And he had never been in this a situation before. It was actually a colleague of mine at the college that said, this is not what I do, but I'm going to refer you to Dr. Ember because this is something he may be able to do. And I did. And then the following year, I had a case in Massachusetts, and it was in the New Bedford Superior Court. It was a grueling matter. I testified. I was on the stand for three days. Um, it's very, very intensive. Um, I'm not there to look at guilt or innocence. My only role is to say, does this person have such severe disabilities that it would impair their judgment, impair their ability to understand their Miranda rights? I even had a case where there was a driver from Quebec. And some people might remember this. It was back, I don't know, maybe in the mid-90s. He had a load of lumber and he 
he dumped the lumber, the truck dumped the lumber all over Route 95, 90, maybe 93 North. And it caused a tremendous traffic tie-up. My role wasn't, well, did he do it or not? Was he guilty? He had a couple of beers, suppose. That, that was not what I was hired to do. I was asked, what was his ability in English? Because when the police arrested him, they gave him his rights, but not in French, in English. And so I, that case eventually settled, but I was involved in that. And I've had several other cases. That's okay. And I would do more of that work depending on the case. I kind of have to weigh it. Uh, I had three of those cases, two of which were in Massachusetts just this past summer uh, in 2021. And I had a case in Ohio. They're not my favorite kind of case, to be honest. Uh, what I really am getting into now is you have two parents that are divorcing or more likely they have already divorced. They live in different towns. They have different ideas about what's the best school for my child and or where do I want my child to go to school? And the courts are really challenged by this because it's, it's quite honestly, it's, it's, it's almost, I don't want to say it's unfair for a judge to have to adjudicate such a matter, but it's, it's very, very difficult to make judgment. So they, the judges have said, you want to hire an expert who can look at this, I'm open, I want to hear the testimony, and then I'll make a decision from there. Doesn't mean that necessarily just because I did research, they're going to say, yep, Steve is our guy, we'll rely on him. I've done pretty well with it, actually. But it's not without a lot, a lot, a lot of hard work and careful preparation with the attorneys for testimony. So then I do an analysis of the two different schools. Sometimes it's more than two schools and it gets really complicated. And then the child may or may not have special needs because sometimes the kids do not have a case in Michigan currently. And there are two children involved and neither child has special needs, but the parents do not agree on school one parent is more in a city and the other parent is more in a suburb. And actually, I just this week spoke with the curriculum director for the entire district of one, for one where one parent would like the child to go. I find these cases very interesting. And I, again, I have to call it the way I see it. So if I really find that the parents that's come to me has come with me with a district that's but honestly, not that impressive. And I have a lot of data to back it up. I, I can't go on record and say, oh, yeah, no problem. I'll testify to support your idea. Now, it's extremely rare that I run into that problem. Most of the time, parents do research. They're intelligent. They say, look, I'm not an expert, but I did some research. And I really think the district in which I live is going to provide a much superior education. So I'm getting more and more of these cases. And quite honestly, I got... And maybe I got at least three, I don't know if it was four, but at least three cases this yeah, past yeah. year from Massachusetts. But is that, is that out of your um, expertise? Like if I'm just curious if the, if the, if the youth are, is, they don't have any disabilities and it's really just kind of a parent against parent type of uh, argument and you're coming into kind of weigh the school systems or how, where the child should ultimately be, you know, the most benefit for them. Is that, is that a, a distance from your, from what you typically would have done? Like, cause you're not evaluating it. Maybe you are. Very, very good point. That's an excellent observation. It, I started to do this many years ago. And then what happened is probably around 2018, 2019, I had for whatever reason, uh, a reemergence of these cases. I have happened in Connecticut. There were three of them. And I was able to do actual hard data comparison. Typically, you look at uh, the departments of ed and you look at the criteria they have and you can evaluate the schools and student teacher ratio, uh, clubs, all kinds of things. I mean, there's many criteria, but you can also look at some hard numbers. Connecticut, they, of course, have state tests in Massachusetts. People are familiar with the MCAS mm -hmm. and you can analyze that. And, and if the differences are really close, that's one thing. If there's a substantial difference, sure, I can report that. And there are other agencies, you know, or, or uh, folks that research this that I go to. So it, it's actually, I didn't mention this, but I'm currently certified and have been certified as a special educator. So I could teach kids with disabilities in many different areas, elementary level, secondary level, um, with a, a variety of different disabilities, many of the disabilities that you mentioned earlier. Uh -huh. I'm also certified as a special education director. 
but get supervised, administrate. And I've done that part-time, by the way, about 10 years, but I'm not doing that right now. But the key to the question you just asked is, I'm also certified as a school psychologist. And so that credential relates to general education as well as special education. And um, certainly uh, what comes to mind is that I, I actually was asked where I served as a special ed consultant for a district. I was hired by the school district. Uh-huh. The director of special ed said, I really have a need. I know you're certified as a school psychologist. Would you be willing to work with me? I'll, I'll even pay you additional if we need uh, special testing uh, that you could do. And I agreed to do that work. And so um, although I'm not certified as a building principal or a superintendent, that certainly doesn't mean I can't analyze this data. If I need help, I reach out to gain some support and gain further insights and, and get some assistance in getting the statistics put together. And then I end up writing my own conclusions and recommendations. And so is it a bit challenging? Yes. But I do have a moral compass. And if honestly, if I did have a case, it's been very rare, but if I did have a case where the parent coming to me actually had a, a presentation of one district that was inferior to the other parents' district that they proposed or educational program, then I'd say so. So I'm getting cases, number of cases where the kids do not have disabilities. In some cases, they have minor disabilities, but they're significant and they have what's called a 504 plan, which is a plan to accommodate students that are identified as having a disability, but not necessarily qualified under the Individual with Disabilities Education Act. And some of the kids I work with clearly have IEPs. So actually yesterday, I participated in an IEP meeting and the matter is before the court, but my concern is what's in the best interest of the child. And the lawyer knows that. And the parent who's retained me knows that. And I really, I was sort of impressed with what the school district is doing, but my concern is, are they really meeting her needs to the degree that they should? According to federal regs, she's entitled to free appropriate education. I mentioned one other thing that you ask about challenges. As a professor, as a consultant, and as an expert, I'm not an attorney. I'm not trained as an attorney, though I've taught three three graduate courses three summers uh, years ago on uh, special education and the the law. I've had to learn an awful lot about litigation, about special education law and case law, and I have had to even, sometimes I've even testified about it. For example, matters of including kids with disabilities in general education. I've had cases where I've had to be up on my stuff regarding discipline. And there are cases people don't realize this, but believe it or not, some of these cases have gone to Diana Ross. Maybe I'm not saying that right. Better to say it's gone to the Supremes. All right. Better to say it's gone to the United States Supreme Court. And most people say, no, no, we're talking special ed. I know. But there are many, many cases going all the way back to Rowley, which was a U.S. Supreme Court case, the very first one of its kind back in 1983. And there is case after case. And I actually have found it very critical for me to research these cases. Uh, Sometimes I've worked with attorneys who have asked me to assist. And again, I'm not an attorney, but. I've had to learn my stuff, and and it's very, very helpful. Sometimes it's helpful in meetings because sometimes issues come up. So that's been a challenge, but um, when I need to, I have access to a database that I can look up uh, special education legal cases, and I've certainly included some cases in the area of independent educational evaluations, which you said mentioned I've been doing them. I've done them since 76. What most people might not know is that I've been writing about them since 1992 and researching, and I've actually even served on websites and done guest seminars and and done all kinds of things. And I wrote an article that got published in the uh, journal in my field, very coveted journal called Exceptional Children, and it's an international journal. And they published an article that I wrote in the fall of Uh, 2003 on independent avowals, and it did include case law. It included letters that come from the U.S. Department of Ed, OSEP letters, Office of Special Education Programs, and it actually included legal cases and an analysis of the rights of school districts and parents. So that's not the only thing that I've written on it, but that's also been interesting work and a challenge. Has has testing and evaluation changed since you got into the field? 
Wow, what a dynamite question. Yes. And I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you why. And any entrepreneur out there is going to go figures. Testing is a big business. I don't mean a big business. I mean a multi-million, maybe billion dollar industry. Why? The schools have an affirmative obligation to evaluate. And ever since June of 1975, when Public Law 94142, the All Children's Handicapped Education Act was passed and implemented in October 77, 78, districts have had to identify kids, for example, with learning disabilities. Now, they have to evaluate whether the kids have cognitive disabilities, attention deficit disorders. So we started out and we had the wide range achievement test and the Peabody Picture Vocabulary Test. And there was the Wexler IQ test. You know, schools did testing, but it was relatively limited. What's happened is it's literally mushroomed. It's mushroomed into a gigantic industry. And the thing is that when I was hired at Rhode Island College, uh, and those people from Rhode Island might know and respect the name Dr. Elena McMahon. She was my dean. And I was hired on the condition that the special ed department would allow me half time to supervise an interdisciplinary clinic for special ed students, undergraduate and graduate. And I accepted that responsibility. And I can tell you, I won't do it now unless you want me to do a little of it. I can tell you the names of the tests like the Woodcock Johnson um, I could tell you the key math test, the test of written language. These tests all began to evolve when I started my career. I can tell you the year. And I started to learn about how to give these tests, which I did because the field has changed dramatically. It's gotten better, actually, and much more precise, but not perfect. Um, and there are many, many different tests that are used to evaluate. Now, if you said, well, are there some leading tests? Absolutely. The Woodcock-Johnson test of, uh, of achievement, absolutely well-respected test. But what happened is that the folks that developed the Wechsler scales of intelligence said, wait a minute, we can get in on this. And they developed a test called the Wechsler Individual Achievement Test. Now, I make a few jokes about this when it comes up in a meeting because the test is abbreviated, the Wyatt. And I made a joke one time I was in a meeting in one town in Rhode Island and the principal was going on and on about, you know, our, our team will evaluate. We're going to use the Wyatt. And I said, well, sir, I, I don't know. That's such a good idea. He said, what do you mean? He started to get defensive. And I said, well, sir, that test was only normed in Tombstone and Dodge City. And he didn't get it. And believe it or not, it was the occupational therapist that was quick enough to get the sad joke that I cracked. She elbowed her principal and said, I think Dr. Imber just made a joke about the Wyatt. And he sat there motionless for 30 seconds and he burst into a big belly laugh. And then he appreciated the joke. But the point is, they got into it. There's the Kaufman test of educational ability, the TEA, KTEA. There's a lot of different tests and I could go on and on because I've given many of these tests. Um, so the, the field has changed dramatically. And now you have speech and language therapists that have tremendously broad array of tests. They do many different tests. OT, occupational therapists have a variety of tests. And it's my job as a consultant to review this data, even if I'm not an OT, which I'm not, or a speech and language therapist, which I'm not, my first cousin is. Um, and I have a niece who is, but that I know a bit about speech and language. And I even took a course in it, but that's not my area of super expertise. That's an area I'm somewhat knowledgeable about. So yes, the field has changed dramatically. And I will tell you that I think even in writing IEPs, when I first started, schools were writing terribly vague IEPs. There were many complaints about it. Uh, the federal government tightened up the rigs. They say the goals have to be measurable. Again, that could be class. math. I see what does it mean to be measurable? But the fact is, they are supposed to be measurable. And for example, I just read an IEP in preparation for that meeting that I had yesterday. I give the school people a lot of credit. I would say that the professionals that wrote that IEP have their heads on straight. They wrote some pretty good goals and objectives. And I, I, was, I was pretty impressed with that. So, you know, a lot of times I'm called in to review IEPs and other, other mm -hmm. kinds of documents. But the field, you're, it's a great question because the field really has changed. Have you ever done anything with... Um, Excuse me, this is nothing to sneeze at. I apologize. <laughs> Have you done anything with like even on like this, there's all these tests now at the at the hiring, at the adult, I mean, it's probably outside of your expertise, but, you know, personality tests, you know, all these, uh, you know, uh, Myers-Briggs and all that stuff. Do you, do you do any adult 
you know? Well, you know, um, I was trained to do testing at the University of Connecticut in the clinical site department. I, I was a doctoral candidate fully for one year. I did want a program that was more educationally oriented to children and that would focus not just on psych, but on educational needs and special education needs. But I did have such training, but I did not, I do test adults, but what I test adults with primarily are academic tests or cognitive tests like the Woodcock-Johnson test of cognitive ability. So when I had to go to West Virginia and test an individual who actually was a criminal defense case, he was in jail, I, I met him for two days in a row, I administered a test on cognitive ability, do I administer personality tests? Well, I was trained to do that. Believe it or not, I was trained to do the Rorschach, trained to do the thematic apperception test, the draw a person test. Um, there's the test code. I think it was called the good enough draw a person test. And I always wondered, is it really good enough? <laughs> yes, it was. And I'm going to share something with you that uh, most people who know me don't have a clue about. When I was an undergraduate student, I was interested in developing a test of trust for children. Hmm. Now, I learned that there was a test of trust developed by uh, Julian B. Roeder, who was a professor at Ohio State and then became a professor at UConn. I knew Dr. Roeder. He was my advisor for a bit. But I developed that test, and I don't want to go on about it, except that the test got recognized by the Educational Testing Service in, in, in New Jersey. And it eventually, it was published. Um, I wrote an article that got published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology so very long ago. I think it was the fall of 1973. And uh, that got a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, positive um, accolades. That test was developed by a team of psychologists who asked me for permission. I said, go for it. And they took my items and they took the items of another former student of Dr. Julian Roeder, Dorothy Hockwright. Dorothy and I, we didn't quite mesh. But what's funny is that our test items were combined into a validated trust scale published in a journal called the British Journal of Developmental Psychology back in 2005. Uh, I believe it's Ken Rottenberg. Dr. Ken Rottenberg is very, very well known in the field, and he is the guru in trust. I will say he wrote me a neat letter saying, I, have a, I owe you a gratitude of debt. That's an exaggeration, in my opinion. I think he deserves the accolades. But as far as adult testing goes, let me say I have tested adults and personality measures. That's not the focus of my practice. That's really not. That, to me, is something that a, a clinical psychologist or a neuropsychologist would be best suited to do. Um, and I, you know, I'm not, in my opinion, I can review those tests. That's fine, but I don't believe that I'm the appropriate person to be administering those kinds of personality tests. Yeah. So yeah. I, I don't do that type of testing, even though I was trained to do it many, many years ago. So looking back over 45 plus years in this profession, is there anything that you would you tell yourself when you first started out that you do differently? Any advice wow. you give to a young, <laughs> to a young doctor, Ibner? Yes. Uh, first of all, I will say this about life in general and, and in, in my business. I don't care how good your vision is. It's real hard to see around, very difficult to see around corners. Mm -hmm. So many things came my way that I have done that I would have said, you're joking. There's no way I'm, I'm going to testify in a superior court in Massachusetts on a murder one trial. What are you smoking? I'm not going to do that. Uh -huh. I'm going to get involved in working with kids when I have no skills per se, no training to work with children who are blind. I've had several cases where I was involved in uh, that, that. There was an interaction with the Perkins School for the Blind. And again, it, a lot of this stuff, I even told people, I have supposedly a lot of expertise. I don't have any expertise. Thank you very much. And they went, don't hang up. And I ended up helping to pull cases together. I certainly had enough sense to say, we have to bring in an expert on blindness. And I had a second case that came to me by a lawyer. And then she said, well, you came highly recommended. And I started to laugh. I said, that's really funny. Who recommended me for that kind of case? She said, the Perkins School for the Blind. Then I realized why they said that. I did help 
on a major case. I think you have to remain flexible. You have to be open. You do have to know what your limits are. And sometimes it's a gray area. You don't know, like going into the ocean, you might step down and all of a sudden you sink five feet or more. You just don't see it. So I think you need a moral compass. You have to be open to saying, I can't do everything. But I have to be open to saying, maybe I can do things that I'm not sure that I can do. You really, I don't, what I can say is you have to really think these things through. I think you've got, you you should seek advice. And I'm going to say that you're going to also want to seek support legally in setting up a business, learning how to have an appropriate contract with clients that's fair to them, but fair and protects you. For years, I resisted doing that. And I have a fantastic attorney. He's a great guy, been a long friend, longstanding friend. And he very gently said to me after I had a major problem came up, he said, now are you ready? Would you, I, I know you're reluctant. Would you do a contract? So there's a whole end of running a business. It's important that people consult with people like you. You have expertise in accounting. Most people don't have a clue. I, I know an attorney that I've worked with that I care about very dearly, but I will say this. You know, he's still doing this stuff on paper. I've said, hey, I learned from one of my colleagues at Rhode Island College, Dr. Sue Dell, who's one of the most fantastic people you'd ever meet in your life. Sue said, I can teach you how to use Excel for grading. I then learned how to use it to keep track. And anytime I work on a business case, I have an Excel sheet and I document immediately. I mean, within a minute or two, when I finish working, every phone call, every period of time that I've researched. It's very, very rare that I don't document within 10 or 15 minutes and maybe five minutes of when I finish. That level of organization, that level of accounting skills, very important. And and I didn't have it. And again, people go to someone like you, they can gain expertise to help them because you can say, yeah, but I'm not interested in that math stuff. And well, you better be. Because you're going to run a business that's called income, and you have to have a way of dealing with this. You're going to have to do tax work with it. You had better sharpen up your skills. You can leave the expertise to people like yourself, but you still have a role. If you're doing what I'm doing, you have to keep track of the stuff and be careful about what you do. Otherwise, you may end up losing time, and you certainly don't want to be charging the time you're not actually putting in. So I use a stopwatch. It's another thing I learned to do. I use a stopwatch. So if I'm working, now I get a phone call. I shut the stopwatch off. I don't want my client paying for a phone call on another matter. And by the way, if it was on the same matter, okay, I still stop the watch. The phone call I bill for, but the time I'm working, that's a different matter. So there's there's so much. And I really would say that if you can reach out to somebody, if you could get somebody to assist you, to mentor, to problem solve, it may be worth it to pay someone to help you to consult if you can afford it. The problem is when you're first starting out, some people have it, but many people don't have the funds to hire someone. But you might find someone that will occasionally be honest with you and try to give you a bit of advice and try to steer you in the right direction. And I think that's really important. But the flexibility is important. And I think being open to new possibilities is important. But I will share a footnote with you on that. Mm-hmm. I mentioned the case of blindness. Yeah. I can't tell you the number of cases that I sweat. And you might say, oh, you, you should never admit that as an expert in your field. Now I am admitting it. I'm admitting it openly. Why? I, I have a sense of humor, as you found out, although I get accused of a lot of dad jokes. I, I plead NOLA on that. <laughs> if my daughter ever sees this, I have a daughter who's a licensed social worker. My older daughter is a clinical psychologist, neuropsychologist. If they ever see this, they'll go, dad. But seriously, um, wow. You, you know, you, you, you really have to weigh what you're doing. But there's a danger in taking on cases that you have no business taking on. Uh-huh. But there's another danger, and that is precluding and saying, I can't do it. And limiting yourself and refusing to entertain, well, suppose I did take this case. What would I do? How would I approach it? And uh, so what I'm going to tell you is that sometimes sometimes I know exactly what I need to do, and, and it's pretty routine. I have a case that I'm working on right now involving divorce in a different state, and I was having a lot of trouble figuring the case out. I, I, I understood what I was supposed to do in general. I couldn't wrap my head around the case. And I awakened at three in the morning and all of a sudden it was like taking a snapshot. I said, I've got it. 
I got it. I just figured it out. This parent is looking at the needs of the kids intensively broad range, but also taking a long view and looking at lifespan. So what I'm saying is that I do struggle with cases sometimes, and I think that's healthy. If you start getting too arrogant, whether it's testimony, whether it's research, whether it's writing, there's really no place for arrogance. You know, you've got to be open to the fact that you have to be thorough in what you do. So I, I, I think it's a growing curve, and there are a lot of bright people out there that could do well. But I'm mentioning because we don't, frankly, I wish universities would offer courses mm-hmm. combining. They could bring in business people. They could bring in specialists and consultants and lawyers. I could put together a course on this that would be absolutely, uh, it would be fantastic. Um, I can say, I mean, I, could, I didn't really ever think about it, but now that you're asking me, I could actually devise such a course. And I think it would be a tremendous thing. A lot of people would want to take it because there's such a, a need. Uh, you know, I, I asked my attorney, I said, did they give you a course like that in law school? And he started to laugh. He said, what, are you kidding me? No, you got to figure this out on your own. My, my daughter graduated a couple years ago as a nurse from uh, UMass Amherst. In the first, one of the first conversations, she said, I, I don't know anything about like insurance. And like, she was asking me questions in her first job. And she's like, they don't teach us any of this stuff. And uh, it's true. You don't, you learn your craft only. And it's all the whole stuff around it, running, your, running a business, finances. None of that is ever taught. You know, and, let me let me ask you this, yeah. um, Jeff. In, in your work, did you just go into business immediately for yourself, or did you end up working for a firm and kind of learn the ropes by working with a firm? Um, good question. So I went to work for a firm. I was in a, a national firm, a public accounting firm, and I was an auditor. Um, and then when I left, you know, I, that that just wasn't for me. I spent uh, five years, I think, doing that. And I said I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but. I still wasn't trained. I knew how to do accounting because I was an accountant, but hiring and marketing and building, you know, a scalable practice. And it was, it's, it's, I'm still going through, you know, learning things like that. Um, because well, you got a great, you got a great website of single solutions and you've learned how to do it. But what I'm getting at is what I suspected, which, you know, maybe a lawyer says, okay, you know, some lawyers say, all right, all right, I'm going to go work. I want to do criminal defense. I'm going to work for the prosecutor's office and may learn a huge amount. A lot of it depends on yeah. who they work with and their mentoring. Then they go out to do the thing on their own. Some police members, by the way, have done that. I mean, I'll be honest with you. My career has meandered through different areas, and mostly I've been intense about it. But I was involved in an issue. It was actually a Massachusetts issue where a, a child actually had been shot in a school. And I was asked by the school, could we take a behavior management workshop? That was the head of the union call. And then said, I have a different idea. Would you be open to it? We'd like to hire you and have you come out to our suburban school department where you never would have imagined this happened. And again, I said to myself, gee, I I don't know. I'm not sure. And I said to myself, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you figure out how you can do it? And I thought, wow. And I did figure it out step by step. But again, I'd say, here's what I'm proposing. Now you give me feedback. Is this okay? Mm -hmm. But a lot of this business management, the things that you're talking about are really tricky. I didn't realize that I would end up being the, the co-coordinator of the Rhode Island Anti-Violence Coalition, that I'd actually end up working at one point minimally. I don't want to overstate it. With Sheldon Whitehouse, who's now very, very well known uh, as a senator, but he was the attorney general at the time. I worked with the attorney general. I worked with law enforcement. I worked with a former building principal, assistant principal on violence prevention. We, we did workshops primarily in the Northeast, but we did many workshops on that topic. If somebody had said, are you going to be working on violence prevention within the schools? What training do you have? I didn't. It just, it became a very clear need. And as you know, even what happened in in Texas recently is very, very tragic. It became a need and there it was. But uh, so, so in any event, rolling with it, that's what you've, you've had to do. And as you know, as you say, you're still working on it. I could say, well, I'm not working on it anymore. I'm on top of my game. I know what I'm doing. I'm still working on it, too, to be very honest. I still. Our comfort zone, our technical ability, when we start leaving that to run a business and do all this financial stuff and hiring, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's tough, you know, because we don't we're not taught that we're not taught how to even manage people. 
you know. Well, uh, as you say, leaving the comfort zone, and this is where a lot of people are are almost rigid about it and aren't willing to take risks. And I have to be honest, if you take a case and you've never done a case like that before, mm-hmm. you could ask yourself, what the heck do you think you're doing? You can also say, okay, I know I haven't done this before. Can I figure it out? Right. And then if I hit a roadblock, can I find a way around the roadblock? So you're constantly learning and it's a, it's an evolving development of skills. And while, while I've certainly, I'd like to think I've, I've, I've gained tremendous uh, knowledge and experience, wow, am I still open to learning about this stuff? Because there's constantly curveballs that people throw at you. Right. And uh, you're not going to necessarily hit every ball out of, out of the park, but you better be aware that those curveballs are coming and you don't know when they're coming. You might get a slider. You might get a fastball. You sound like a baseball player, aren't I? What are your passions? What do you do outside of work? Because it sounds like you're pretty busy with these cases and you know, keeping all these balls in the air. So I'm just curious about you and and. Uh... Well, I do a lot of things. I, I you know, I, I just injured my left Achilles tendon a few months ago. I was still out there. I can't play the way I played when I played varsity for the University of Buffalo. I did do that. I try, and that's how I got injured. I went after a ball, cross-courted it, put it away, and succeeded in really doing a number. And I was actually on the treadmill earlier today because I've about had it with myself. I have to do something about this. I'm going to get physical therapy for it. But I like tennis. I've had a passion for tennis. I like to get back to playing chess once in a while. Sometimes I think I could beat a five-year-old about now. I, I, I have been playing the computer. Um, I love classical music. I bought this fantastic telescope. The problem is, I and it's, it's computer geared. So once it's set up, at least for that day, it will track the planets or whatever it is you're looking at. It'll go in the same motion and speed. It's all assembled. I need some expertise from somebody. And and this is what you do to do it. I joined some astronomy club on Long Island Uh where I grew up. That's where I grew up. Been in uh, Rhode Island for many, many years now, since 73, 1873, actually. Um, So I have a passion uh, for all kinds of music. This is going to be Clinton-esque. I do actually, for recreation, and some might say, no, it's not your recreation. It's torture for other people. I play a violin. And I will not fault my violin teachers. I took lessons for years. And just like kids have disabilities in reading, dyslexia, I took violin lessons for years and years, and my brain could not compute. I cannot read music. However, I can play classical. I can play rock and roll. I can, could you do something for the Beatles? Yeah. How about uh, the Everly Brothers? Yeah. The Beach Boys? Yeah. You know, I can pick it up and play folk music. I can play holiday music. And if you say, how are you doing that? Where are those notes coming from? Two things, I'm sorry to say. I don't know, and I I don't care. I really don't care anymore. But I enjoy doing that. And actually, in the same room that I'm at, there is a beautiful Gibson 12-string sunburst guitar. One of the things I would like to do is to start to play it again. I even took a, a class University of Buffalo in classical music with a gentleman named Mr. Santucci. He was a great guitar teacher, and, and he put up with me because my ability to read music again was limited. Malaganya, I remember. So I have a passion for that. I like nature. I love nature. Oh, and I, I should tell you, I really enjoy being with my family. Uh, I have two grandchildren, and they're both characters. They're, they're bright, capable kids, and they, they are a light of my life. As are my children. I love both of my kids. And, you know, um, I have a fiance and awesome. I really awesome. care about her. So from that point of view, I try to balance my life. But when I, I have a sort of a Geiger counter in my head, when I know I need to work, then that's it, my work. But I do have a lot of passions and I love to travel. I like cruising. Nice. Um, so, in fact, just came back from one on the, on the Norwegian cruise line. Think about cruising with them. I, I was concerned because I wasn't sure I could afford to go. <laughs> where, where did it go? Is it Caribbean or did you go overseas? Or I don't know. I never. No, I'll tell you. It, it went <laughs> went from actually flew down to Flor, uh, Florida to Miami, which I was really not excited about doing, but it was a nice thing to do. And we went to Roatan, which is an island off of the uh, off of Honduras, and we went to a few ports in Mexico. Uh, Castamaya, Cozumel, 
And uh, it was a great trip. I would do it again. It was wonderful. And it was good to relax and slow down. I still had to pay attention to my business. Even on the ship, you'd say, what are you, nuts? Hey, I'm running a business. Mm. Tried to minimize, but I also got back to people in a timely manner. It's so I love traveling. Been to lots of places, but many to go. Yeah. All right. Well, where can people find you? You want to throw out any information? I know you have a website. Sure. Right? Yes. My website is uh, uh, it's uh, www.dr for doctor, dr hyphen, imber.com. Okay. com with a hyphen. If they look up special education expert on the internet, that's all they really have to do. They'll find me very easily mm-hmm. and they can contact me. There is a business number that is 401-421-4004. If uh, the client and I have a, a, a mutual interest in working together and I'm going to get retained, I give them my cell number. So that makes uh, access to me extremely easy. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, that's probably the way people can reach me. The other thing people could do if they choose is they can email me. And my email is S-C-I-M-B-E-R-1 at AOL.com. It looks like Skimber1 okay. at AOL.com. So that's how people can reach me. You're on LinkedIn also? Did you? I'm sorry, did you mention Abraham? I mentioned LinkedIn. Oh, I thought you were talking about Abraham LinkedIn. Right. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, I actually am on LinkedIn. Now that you mention it, Yes. I am. And I'm also on JurisPro, which is if somebody's looking for an expert, they could get an expert on almost anything. JurisPro, ALM, uh, experts.com, experts.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, you know, again, they're going to find my own website if they if they uh, go there and they'll get some background information. So, yeah, I'm I'm out there. And that's another learning experience. When I first started to work, of course, we didn't have the Internet. And even when we first had it, a lot of people like, you know, yeah, no, no, no. It's all print. And now I'm not saying print is exactly a dinosaur, but some people would say it's somewhat passe. Uh, I don't even think I'm asked to pay for a directory anymore. I don't even know if they're doing that anymore. A written directory. It's kind of so much online. And again, if you're not adaptable, I once had a secretary. She said, Dr. Timber. You're going to have to find somebody else to take dictation and type your reports. I said, why? She's a very, very good secretary. She said, I'm not into the technology. I'm not getting another computer. I'm not getting another printer. I, I'm letting you, I'm, you get about six months, but I'm done. I'm done. I, you know, and that's it. She said, I love Lucy. That's what I like to watch. And she's a very, very nice person, but she wasn't into the technology. Right. My right. attitude, this is part me partly being as a professor, you got to roll with it. And you have to learn to deal with technology. And so in my own case, when, when COVID came, I had a choice. I could retire. I really wasn't ready. And I thought, well, your alternative is to learn how to do Zoom. And I thought, I have no idea how to do that. And I thought, well, that's too bad. You're either going to figure it out with support or quit. And I thought, well, I don't want to quit. And I thought, then there's nothing more to discuss. Just go figure it out. And that's what it is. And for all of us, you know, we have to deal with that. The other day, I my meeting was in Google Links, not Zoom. You could say, ah, it's no big deal. Well, I've used Google Links a couple of times before. We're in a little problem with it. Yesterday was good. So it's the technology. Yeah. But um, in any event, yeah, so that's part oh, of life. This has been great. I, I could talk. Uh, well, you could talk for hours. <laughs> And I could listen. <laughs> now, this is I, I, I learned a ton. I think it was it's kind of cool at over 45 plus years. You've kind of been able to keep this thing going all different cases. You've kind of moved into kind of different types of cases over the years and even more currently with what you're doing with the parents and, and courts. And uh, no, I, I, I want to thank you I, to, for doing this. And I'd love to talk to you again down the road. Well, I'd love to do that. You know, I appreciate this because when I first started to work, it was Rhode Island, a tiny bit Connecticut, little mass, Massachusetts. Now it's it's all over the country. I, I got a phone call from an attorney uh, and you might say, well, do you know what state she was calling you from? And I'd have to say, you know, I don't know. Alaska. 
<laughs> now that's where she's from. Right. And, uh, you know, I don't know whether I'll be retained, but she sounded like she's ready to go. We'll see. But I, that's one of the things I, I want to mention that um, my business after 45 years continues to grow and it grows in many ways, including getting cases from other states. So I've had cases in at least 22 states now, and it's kind of exciting. But I really appreciate the opportunity to be on with you. You're you're a great host. And uh, and I, of course, have great professional respect for your work and your abilities. And uh, I, I, I consider it to be an honor to be on your show. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I, I consider it an honor that you are on the show. So uh, oh, thank you. Thank you. Awesome. And I think the uh, people who are listening to this, I encourage you to, you know, share it. If you like it, you know, send us a message. Connect with Dr. Ember. Um, again, thank you, Dr. Ember. And this has been another episode of Leaders Who Scale. And that wraps up another episode. Thank you for joining. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at leaderswhoscale.com. Leaders Who Scale is sponsored by Siegel Solutions, providing world-class services and cutting-edge tools that help businesses grow and succeed.